In the mid-60s of the first century, uh, there was a man named Titus who received a letter from the Apostle Paul, the famous Apostle Paul. The gospel of Jesus Christ had been spreading far and wide in the ancient Roman world, and even on Crete, where Titus was stationed, uh, an island, a fairly large island in the Mediterranean Sea, new churches of Jesus began to pop up. Paul and Titus were co-laborers. Paul was an apostle, Titus was kind of an apostle's delegate. And through the many years, they had traveled together, they'd preached this gospel in far-off lands, and they had seen churches begin all over the place. And while the signs of new Christian life in places like Crete were certainly encouraging, they both knew there was still lots of work to be done. The spiritual soil in Crete, in particular, seemed totally unsuitable, unhospitable uh, for the gospel to grow. And, And so Paul writes to Titus to encourage him, to instruct him, to continue to water and toil and and work in God's field in order to see the new churches in Crete, uh, there were probably many, to see them grow to become fruitful. Through the course of this letter, we're going to see that Paul tells Titus that there are leaders to grow. There are godly habits for us to begin to develop. There are troublemakers that need to be answered. And of course, the gospel just needs to continue to be preached and spread out further and believe more deeply. So the the letter of Paul to Titus is, of course, written from Paul to Titus. But at the same time, it's a letter written by the Holy Spirit to his church, to us. It is God speaking by what he has spoke. And so together, we listen to this letter as a new church, not not even yet gathering for a full year, We're just taking root in the soil of Halifax, and we're asking God now to speak to us and to help us continue the work that he's begun. This letter, again, was probably just read in one uh, one sitting, so I'll get Brittany to come forward now and read for us um, two different sections from it. Brittany. Titus chapter 1, verse 1 to 4, and chapter 2, verse 11 to 14. Paul, a servant of God, and an apostle of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in the common faith, Grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ, our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us again. Father, thank you for speaking to us in your word. We ask that you would now open our ears, that you would send your spirit so that we can hear all you have to speak to us. We pray that all in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Have you ever uh, been approached with a daunting task, something that you felt uh, required far more than you had to give? What made this problem worse was that you felt that you were alone in it, that you didn't have any assistance. Not only was the task 
nearly impossible for you, but you had this sense that nobody had your back. It was just you. Titus was also given a, a somewhat impossible task on the island of Crete. This was a region that was notorious in the ancient world. It was a byword for being immoral, for being devious, for being really proud of its pagan roots. They boasted routinely that, uh, that they were the birthplace and the burial place of, of Zeus. And they actually tried their very best to imitate that god's lusts and power over others and their behaviors. The Cretans were notorious uh, for being hard-hearted and stubborn. And Paul sent Titus there. It must have sounded like an impossible task to him. And so in this opening section of his letter to Titus, Paul wants Titus and he wants the church of Crete to know that though this task is really difficult, though it seems impossible, they're not on their own, not by a long shot. They do have a giant task ahead of them, but it can be faced because God himself is at work, past, present, and future, to build faith in his son, Jesus Christ. God himself is at work in this world, in Halifax, in Crete, past, present, and future, to build faith in his son, Jesus Christ. God's also given Christ Church Halifax a very large task. Halifax is also a notorious and challenging place to begin a new work. Uh, when, when Brittany and I were first exploring coming to Halifax to start a church, uh, we had lots of pastors describing Halifax as a church planting graveyard, where lots have tried, but most end up in the ground after not too long. And with such encouraging words, they welcomed us. <laughs> they said, it's difficult. We'd love for you to be here. See, in Halifax, we, we actually don't have to look very far to see a similar kind of opposition that Titus must have faced. Um, the gospel is, is actively resented or opposed in, in many quarters of our city among many people. We don't have to look also very deep into our own hearts to see challenges of various sorts, temptations to waver. Our, our faith often feels thin and weak. Are we on our own? No way. God himself is at work, past, present, and future, to build faith in Christ. This is Paul's encouragement to Titus and I hope to us as well. Paul's letter, if you look at it in verses 1 through 4, it follows the ancient custom of letter writing. Before he gets to the meat, the body of the letter, he begins with a formal salutation or an introduction which describes the letter's sender, its recipient, and blessing. Most ancient letters, you'll find that, that, that uh, pattern. Sender, then its recipient, and then a blessing. In verse 1, you see that the letter's sender is addressed. It's him. It's Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then in verses 1 through 3, he begins to describe what it means for him to be a servant of God, what it means to be an apostle, what the purpose of his job is. And then when you look at the first half of verse 4, uh, towards the bottom, you see the letter's recipient. It's to Titus. Titus was a, likely a Greek, a convert to Christianity. He's mentioned a bunch of times throughout the New Testament. He seems like a great guy, the kind of guy you'd want to have on your team. And even though this letter is, of course, addressed to Titus, its use was meant for public consumption. So you don't have to feel bad that we're reading somebody else's mail. Uh, this is the case with all of Paul's letters. He wants it to be read uh, in the church. Finally, in the second half of verse 4, you see Paul ends his introduction with a blessing. Uh, often it would just be greetings, but, but he gives the very Christian uh, a, a blessing, grace to you in peace. Um, of course, we don't write like this. Typically, when we're writing letters to each other, we begin our letters way more simply. If you're writing to me, it's, it's usually just one or two words. Mike, Dasher, hi Mike, comma. I don't spend a lot of time reading your introductions if you send me an email. And, you know, I just want to get to the main part. Okay, why are you writing me? But Paul's letters are actually crafted way more sophisticated than that. Uh, there is a lot written in Paul's introduction that is important, that is meaningful, that actually tees up a lot of what he's about to talk about in the next three chapters of his letter. 
And so again, we're going to take time just walking through this letter over the next couple of weeks, and the introduction is going to be important to kind of set the stage for all that comes after. Paul is giving instructions to Titus and the churches in Crete to do huge work, and he wants them to know and to believe in this introduction that God's at work beside them, that he's at work too. God is at work, past, present, and future, to build faith in Jesus. So we'll look at this first part, how God himself is at work in the past. God himself is at work in the past. Paul describes himself, if you look at verse 1, as a servant and an apostle of Jesus. And then he writes, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. Paul is here reminding Titus that God in the past determined, made certain, that he would rescue a particular people for himself. These are called throughout the pages of scripture, uh, God's elect, God's chosen one. They are the people that God has decided to set his particular love on. He loves the world. He sends his reign on the just and the unjust, but he has a unique, particular focused love on the elect, his chosen people. He, had, he has pledged himself, surely, to be their God forever. They are his people. And we see this happening in the very early pages of Genesis, where God chooses a man named Abraham. Of all the people in the world, God sets his particular focused love on Abraham, chooses him and his family to set his love on. If Abraham isn't very exciting. There's nothing obvious for, for why God would have chosen him. He didn't deserve it. He didn't do anything to endear himself to God. But God, in his mercy and his grace, called Abraham out from all people to be his own. And he gave Abraham the gift of faith. He revealed himself to Abraham and Abraham believed. Abraham believed in God and had this relationship with God because, again, not anything owing to Abraham's intelligence or suave, but because sometime in the distant past, before the foundations of the world, before Abraham was born or had made a single move, God elected and chose him, decided, determined that Abraham would be his. And as we go down Abraham's family line into Genesis, uh, we see that God continues this move of choosing or electing to set his love on certain people and to give them faith, to build their faith. It's Abraham's son Isaac, but not his son Ishmael, that God chooses. It's Isaac's son Jacob and not Esau, his other son, that God chooses. Even before they're born, before Isaac or Jacob were born, God knew them and chose Isaac or chose Jacob. And down through the ages, we see this again, this happening over and over again. God choosing and setting apart his people, opening their eyes, giving them the gift of faith, pledging to be with them and bless them, not because they've done something unique, because they've merited or earned it in any way, but because of his own purposes and love. Paul worships God for this mystery in Ephesians chapter 1. We actually sing about it in some of our songs. When we sang grace alone, we sang these very words. Uh, Before the foundation of the world, God chose his people so that we would be holy and blameless before him. Now, why this matters for our work in Halifax or for Titus's work in Crete is that we face societies where often it's hard to believe that any person could become a Christian at all. Most people who have heard the gospel in our society, they don't believe it. They don't think it's true. They don't like it or they don't care or it's like some mix of all of the above. And yet, those are the very people that God's electing love comes to. In fact, God's electing love can only come to such people because there's no one else it can come to. Sin is at work in every human heart to muddle, to blind, or to deaden us to the truth of the gospel. Paul himself knows this from experience. He himself 
was once a violent opponent to Christ. In his former life, he was a high-ranking Jewish officer with the authority to arrest and to imprison Christians, which he did with joy. He hated Jesus. He hated the Christian faith. He hated the church. He was not like close to becoming a Christian. He wasn't a spiritual seeker. He was as far away as you could possibly imagine. But Paul was chosen by God. God was at work in the past, before the foundations of the earth. God had decided to set his love on Paul. Paul's life was turned upside down on the road to Damascus. And this is grace. This is God's undeserved favor to sinners. This is what Paul writes in his other section, chapter 2, verse 11. He says, The grace of God, the unmerited kindness of God, has come bringing salvation for all people. Now, all people there isn't referring to every person in the world without distinction, but to all types of people. Uh, maybe you have friends or family that you want, to know, you, want to know, you want them to know Jesus, you want them to love Jesus, but you feel this is impossible. Their unbelief just seems so hardened. Uh, they're, they're so comfortable in their lives. They bristle you know, whenever you mention Jesus' name. You don't see any kind of path ahead. Paul says, when God works, no one is too far gone for him. He brings salvation to all kinds of people, people who, who, who have run away from him in the past. He doesn't ask people to chase after him. Rather, he takes the initiative. He brings salvation to them, no matter what uh, age they are, no matter what social class they're of, uh, how open they seem to be or how close they seem to the gospel. God's grace can choose and to rescue anyone. And this biblical teaching about election, it, it causes trouble for some. They have a difficult time understanding it or accepting it. Some of it just doesn't seem fair, but it's understood by Paul and it's taught by Paul to be an immense comfort to us. So we can, we can labor confidently in Halifax. We can share the gospel with friends and family, no matter what kind of resistance we feel with them, confident that our God can rescue anyone. There is no one that can stop God's work. I like the way that the old Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon once put it. He said, I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. He must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. See, God still knows his people. He has people in Halifax that he has set his love on sometime in the distant past. He's still rescuing people that we would never suspect to be recipients of grace. We don't know who they are, but God does. And so we're called to labor, to preach the gospel to all people, knowing that God will with certainty rescue his people. God himself is at work, friends, past, present, and future, to build faith in Jesus. So the second part, let's look at how God is at work in the present, how God is at work in the present. The, the most obvious example of God's ongoing work in the present is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, God sending himself by his spirit to us. Jesus promised this in John 14 to his disciples um, that God the Father would send the helper, the Holy Spirit, to teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all the things that Jesus has taught us. That's a great comfort to us. Uh, if you are God's, if you are his people, he sends you help. He sends you the helper, the spirit, to live in you and to mature you. But in this text, Paul actually has a different focus than that. Uh, the gift that God sends in the present, Paul writes, are his servants. 
He sends his servants. Paul addresses himself as a servant of God. He's dedicated his entire life to God's service and to the service of God's people for their faith. But he's also chosen by Jesus in a unique way. He is an apostle. Uh, the word apostle uh, literally means uh, messenger or sent one. It can be used in a, in a non-technical sense, just for people who are sent with messages, or it can be used in this very specific sense that Paul is. Uh, Paul has been commissioned and sent by Jesus himself to build the church's faith in the present. This isn't a casual job. This isn't just somebody that I, I, I kind of feel like being an apostle. Maybe I'll be an apostle. It's not the case. Look at the end of verse 3. Um, this gospel of Jesus has been something that Paul has been tasked to preach with authority. It's been entrusted to him by the command of God our Savior. God has commanded that Paul be an apostle for him. Elsewhere, Paul writes, uh, he's compelled uh, by God to this work. It's a necessity that's been laid on him. He says, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. And this is why Paul writes this. Paul is evidence that God is at work in the present to build our faith in Jesus, God sending out specific people uniquely called and empowered by God himself in the present to build our faith. And, and, and just because I have to, here's a sidetrack. Here's a little, we're hopping off the, off the trail just for a minute to look at the kind of faith that God is building in his people. What the goal uh, God has for you in your faith. If you look at verse 1, you see that Paul is sent by God to work for the sake of of or to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. This is really important because Paul is talking about two qualities of the Christian faith and it's these. It's based on or it knows the truth and it produces godliness. So first the Christian faith is based on truth. The message of Christ, his death, his resurrection outside the, the city gates of Jerusalem sometime around 30 AD for our sins and for our salvation as preached by the apostles, his subsequent resurrection, this is all true. It's not an allegory. It's not a legend. It's the truth. The content of the Apostles' Creed, which we recite every week before we approach the Lord's table, that God created the universe, everything in it, that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, that Christ uh, forgives all of our sins by faith, uh, that will be with him forever. All of these beliefs are confessed as truth, N not just as, as a tradition that we pass down, not just as ar archetypal images that we're called to glean some truth from. All Christian faith is based in truth, but there's actually more. It doesn't end there. Our knowledge of the truth, Paul writes, must accord with godliness. It must produce right living. A lot of what Titus is going to hear from Paul, what we're going to hear in the coming weeks, is simply concerned with godliness. What does godly living look like? This, these are new churches in Crete, and, and Paul needs to instruct them, how do we live as rescued people? What, what does it look like? What do our relationships look like with each other as men, and as women, as fathers and mothers, as husbands and wives? But what Paul is writing about isn't just intended to, to stretch you and push you to new obedience in a kind of, you know, raw, grit your teeth, let's get it done way. Rather, it's an obedience that flows out of and is produced by faith and knowledge of the truth. If you look at chapter 2, verses, one, uh, verses 11 through 12, Paul writes, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, but what does it produce? What does this grace of God do? It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives 
in the present age. The faith God's building in us in the present, in the past, in the future, it isn't meant to be some lukewarm, casual Sunday faith. It's to be convinced of the truth, to build our lives on this rock, and then to be committed to living in light of that, to godly living. Okay, we're back on track. (laughs) Um, So God's at work in the present, at least in Paul's day, because he's sending out apostles. He's sending out workers like Titus, who are apostle kind of delegates, to build the faith of the church in the present. But what about today? There are no more apostles in this technical sense, people who had witnessed the resurrection of Jesus and then were hand-selected by Jesus to go and to write authoritatively and to teach authoritatively. So how is God still working in the present? We're going back to Paul's letter in Ephesians, where Paul reminds the church that from heaven where Jesus is, he still loves to send his servants in the present, in today, to build his church and to mature their faith. So in Ephesians 4, He writes that Christ, along with, of course, sending the Holy Spirit to be with us, he gave us gifts. He gave gifts to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain all the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Paul is writing that that God continues to send pastors and teachers to the church to build faith. Now, I don't want to say that uh, as a pastor, I'm God's gift to you. That might sound a little cocky. I'm going to let Paul say it. (laughs) Paul says, as a pastor, I'm God's gift to you. That's what I tell Brittany almost every day. I am God's gift to you. She she knows this line, all right? Uh, And she receives it with joy. Um, This is the reality. In the present, God is still sending his servants to the church. He hasn't stopped doing this through the ages, leaders that are called by God to the church to shepherd the church. Uh, That's where the word pastor comes from. To know God's sheep, to lead them, to feed them, to protect them, to guide them. Also just to teach them, to remind them of all that God has spoken to them in the word, uh, through preaching, through teaching. Both what we're to believe and also what we're called to do. Godly behaviors. I want you to know, listen, you're not on your own. God hasn't just said, good luck. I would love to serve you in your faith. Of course, you're surrounded by lots of good and godly people, but it is also God's pleasure and his plan to use called and qualified leaders, pastors and teachers. Christ really does still from heaven send pastors and teachers to help your faith be built now. I hope you receive my pastoral care as a gift to you. When when you confess your sins on Sunday and I declare to you Christ's forgiveness, when you hear me preach, when you you receive the bread and the wine uh, at communion from my hand, I want you to know that that it is God himself caring for you, building your faith in the present. You're not alone in your walk of faith. You're not alone in the hard work of the gospel that you're called to accomplish while you're here in Halifax because God himself is at work, past, present, and future, to build faith in Christ. Okay, finally, let's look at how God is at work in the future to build faith. I'm not sure this will make sense. Uh, He's at work in the future, trust me. (laughs) In verse 2, Paul gives a second purpose to the Christians in Crete for his work as an apostle. He works for the sake of their faith, for the faith of the elect, which is based in truth. It produces godliness, but he also works for their hope in eternal life. I hope you see that in verse 2. The Christian faith isn't just oriented to here and now, uh, but it it looks uh, 
farther forward into the future than now. It looks to eternal life with God. It looks to rest from our labor. This is the the life that God has promised to his people. Eternal life. Life. Life in all of its fullness forever. And some of us need to hear this. that, That there is a time where we will finally rest from the presence of sin in our lives. The things that we just feel that we cannot overcome. From the suffering that we experience. That we, we felt since childhood or young adulthood. There will be a time where God will give rest from these things. Where, where our pain will cease. Where every tear will be wiped away. Where all of the blessings that were promised in Christ will finally and fully be with us forever. God himself is at work and promises that in the future we'll be with him. We'll make it. Whether we live or we die, we'll arrive safely at home and we'll be with him. And he will see to this. The outcome's secure. And this future reality, keeping our eyes focused on this, is actually meant to help us now deal with the most difficult things we face in the present. In fact, we actually won't be helpful working in the present unless we're future-minded this way. Uh, C.S. Lewis was reflecting on this command by God uh, that we have hope in the future and this is what he writes he writes that hope hope means a continual looking forward to the eternal world it does not mean we are to leave the present world as it is if you read history you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. What Lewis is saying is, whatever difficulties are ahead for you, for for you personally, whatever difficulties are ahead for our church, God would have us look in faith to the future rest that he's promised. Things will not always be like this. All of our labors, all of our sufferings, all of our setbacks and sin, all of our failures, no matter how hard things are for you right now, this is not the whole story. And we'll end with this. You can work, you can labor diligently, faithfully in whatever God's called you to do. And you're not alone. God himself is at work, past, present, and future, to build faith in Christ. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. We're reminded that God's grace, it has come to give us faith, to train us to to, to godly living, but also this, it empowers us to wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would work on us, that you would work in us, and that you would work through us. Lord, we we ask for the help of your spirit, but we also ask for faith to know that that you make our faith your project, that you have not left us on our own, but that you work past, present, and future to to build our faith in, in your son, Jesus. Lord, strengthen us. Give us what we need for the work ahead of us personally, in our families, in our homes, in our workplaces, but also for the work of Christ Church Halifax here in the city. Lord, be with us. Open our eyes to your presence. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.